You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, closing in on the end of this wonderful gospel that we've been in for several years now. But um, today we're going to be look at, looking at, probably today and next week, truth on trial, truth on trial, out of Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 to 68. So I want you to follow along as I read this text for us, Matthew 26. Verses 57 to 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered. And Peter followed him at a distance, as far as the courtyard as the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears to your word this morning as we look into this text of Scripture and all the illegality and the injustice that we see here put upon the very Son of God, the the one who was the perfect lamb to be shed for our sins. And Father, we ask that you would enable us to apply the truth we hear this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing the Jews pride themselves in is being fair, being just, in the way they deal with situations, doesn't matter whether it's terrorists or whether it's situations within their own country, they have a system of justice that they use. And we see every facet of that system of justice that they put in place, that God has put in place for them, um, we see every, every bit of it just thrown to the wayside as they deal with Christ in this situation. Back in Deuteronomy, it kind of gives the foundation for the Jewish justice system. And you can turn back there to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16. They just didn't think all this stuff up on their own. God laid down a foundation for them. Unfortunately, they swayed from that foundation and turned this into something that it should not be. But 
In Deuteronomy chapter 16, follow along as I read verse 18 to 20. It says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes that they shall judge in the people, the people's the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteousness. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. Is giving you. We see here the foundation upon which they built their justice system. You know, there's nothing probably that irks me more than to see the miscarriage of justice. When you see someone who was, you hear of individuals who've been in prison for 20, 25 years on some charge that was trumped up against them, maybe because of the color of their skin or something, and they've been sitting there in prison all these years only to find out now that they have the DNA, the guy never did it anyway. What a horrible thing to happen to you, to be actually innocent. Now, granted, there's a lot of guilty people in prison that need to be there. Uh, don't get me wrong. Um, and they're the ones that are usually claiming that they're, they're innocent, right? But there are some who slip through the cracks of our justice system and end up being falsely accused. Or there are situations where, you know, you remember the, uh, the Olympics where the, uh, they, had a, they arrested a guy, I forget his name, but he was the bomber, you know. I mean, the media just ran with that thing, destroyed this man's life in a matter of days. And yet, he was actually one of the people that was trying to prevent the attack. So it's kind of a crazy, uh, crazy system that we have sometimes. But the Jews prided themselves on being fair and being righteous in the way that they dealt with things because that was God's standard for judgment. That was God's standard for justice. I don't know if you ever watch O'Reilly at all or Fox News. You know, once in a while they'll have little pictures on there, little vignettes of, of people who, uh, you know, a lot of times it's child molesters or raped several children and the judge gives them two months or something. Oh, I, I just see red. I mean, I, w- I could not be responsible for my actions if I was in the presence of that person and had a weapon. I mean, it would be, that would be very frustrating. And yet these judges let these people just go back into society with sometimes very little, little uh, supervision, and they repeat, offend, and everything. And it's, it's a miscarriage of justice. Nothing irritates us more than that, especially when we're trying to live by the rules, when we're trying to do what God desires us to do. Well, throughout history, the Jewish people had a standard that they built upon here in Deuteronomy. And it was one that was to be fair and to be um, righteous and, and, and just across the board. And God basically provided them a means to do that. He said, whenever you gather together a group of, of 120 people or more in a uh, town or a little gathering, you're to gather certain individuals out of that group, and they are to become a council. And that's what's spoken of there in Deuteronomy. And basically, that, that council, we, we call it in, in the Bible, you see it over and over referred to as the Sanhedrin. That's literally just a, a literal transliteration of a Greek word meaning sit together. So God said, wherever you have 120 heads of household, men, 
or more, you're to gather a group of men to deal with the things that are going to come up in that little community. And they can bring their complaints to you or if somebody gets in trouble, whatever, they bring it to this group of men and they decide justly and righteously and and they mete out justice the way that God requires them to do that. And it was always an odd number. It was always an odd number of men. The Sanhedrin basically had 23 men and they had to vote a majority and it was always an odd number. There was also something called the Great Sanhedrin, which was in Jerusalem, their, their worship center, their, their bigger city. And the Great Sanhedrin was made up of the wisest men of these other groups out in the community. And they would come on occasion and they would rule kind of like our Supreme Court. And that was made up of 70 men plus the high priest would made it 71 individuals. And so there was a, a, just a very strict way that they would deal with things. And it, it worked for them. And these were considered wise men in their community. These, these weren't guys who just fell off the pumpkin truck somewhere. You know, these are guys that they got together and they said, hey, th- this man has, has credibility, he has character. We want him to be on this group called the Sanhedrin. Now, we know that they had certain rights. And you'll see a lot of the similarity in our justice system. If you study criminal justice, anything like that, law, you'll, you'll see a lot of the stuff is just carried right over to our system because it's right. And the reason it's right is because God was the one who put this stuff in place. But they had certain guarantees in their culture of the, the, the citizens of of their, their towns and of their cities and things like that. And there were three basic guaranteed rights. And the first one was the right to hear witnesses. The right to hear witnesses. In other words, if someone could not accuse you without having a witness, you just couldn't do it. Um, it's the same thing in our court today. If someone accuses you of something, all right, well, hopefully they saw that happen or they know somebody that did and they can provide witnesses. Because if you end up in court and there's no witnesses, and the only person saying that you did it was somebody that didn't witness it, you can see where that would go real quick. The credibility is, is basically, you know, that, that's an issue. Well, they had two or more witnesses back then, two to three witnesses. You couldn't be convicted unless you had that. Um, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a right to allow these witnesses to point out uh, whatever went wrong. And you couldn't be proven unless you had two or three. It wasn't good just for, for one person. That was just the way they, they worked. A solid case could be built on, on the evidence of witnesses more than one. And that's what we have in our society today, basically. And as a matter of fact, they took this so seriously. I mean, just to let you know, when you, if you were caught bearing false witness of a crime, say you said, hey, my neighbor Joe murdered his wife. Yeah, I saw it. And you got into court, and it was found out that you didn't see it, and you're making all this up, you're, you're bearing false witness, they would actually take your life. That's what it would cost. If your false witness caused this other person, if the, if the justice was carried out and they put him to death, you were responsible for that. As a matter of fact, it says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16, in seven, or 16 to 19, if a false witness rises up against another man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy shall stand before the Lord 
before the priests and the judges who shall be in those days and the judges shall make diligent inquiry and behold, if the witness be a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then you will do unto him as he had thought have done unto his brother. So it's, it, it was very discouraged to bear false witness. It was, it was so discouraged. You remember the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8? Remember when Jesus, everybody was accusing her of adultery, and, and, and Jesus said, well, he who is, what? Without sin, throw the first stone. Well, we think, okay, he was just being wise there. No, that was legitimate. As a matter of fact, if someone was convicted and they were sentenced to stoning, and you were one of the, the, the people who testified against them, you were one of the witnesses, you were required to go to that execution, and you were required to throw one of the first stones. You were included in the execution. It's not like today, where it's all done you know, secretly and you don't see the guy's face. No, it wasn't done that way at all. And so that, in and of itself, kind of caused people to hesitate to bear false witness against anybody. And that's exactly what happened with the woman at the well, remember? They all dropped their stones and they left. Because they knew this was part of their culture. This was part of their system of justice. Well, they not only had the right to to hear witnesses, they also had a right to defense, to self-defense. There was to be a defender. There was someone who would provide a defense for the person accused. That was just a common understanding. It's like today. If you go to court and you're accused of something and you have no money, you can't appoint a lawyer, what's the, the lawyer say? The police officer says, hey, if you can't afford a lawyer, a one will appointed for you, right? Public defender. All right? And they'll give you a lawyer. You have a right to hear witnesses. You have a right to self-defense. You also have you had the right to a public trial. A public trial. There couldn't be any secret trials. It's like today. You can, for the most part, in most trials, if you show up early enough, you can go in and you can sit there. You're not on the jury, but you can sit in the courtroom and watch the trial go because it's not a secret trial. Now, they do have certain elements of the legal system where it is secretive, you know, where they're leading up to a trial or something like that. But back then, they didn't have all that. And so all the trials were just public. They were right in the open. Every trial was to be held in public. No one could be framed. No one could be executed or penalized just because you didn't like him. And, hey, we're just going to hold a mock trial here and get this guy out of here. And so they were, the judges of this day were constantly under scrutiny of the people because it was for the people's benefit that God put this into place. I mean, you see when justice goes wrong. We see it today in our society. And you see some of these judges who make insane decisions. I don't know what they base them on. But you know what? They're a judge. What can you do? Nothing. Can't do anything. And even on the Supreme Court, they're there for life. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous when you stop and think about it. But that's the way it is. You know, so they can make all wrong decisions and nothing could be done, literally. It's kind of a sad situation. But back then, they would all their trials would be public. And the people knew that. And so they could see, are these judges being right with us? Or are they being wrong? Are they framing that guy? Well, I might be next. And they would, they would deal with it. And so most of our court system today is the same way. And so we had those, they had those rights, those guaranteed rights 
basically interwoven into their society. So it was hard to accuse somebody falsely. Now, and, and that allowed that Sanhedrin, that, that court system, to be a safe place for the people. And that was the idea. That's why God put it in place, so they couldn't abuse the people. And so when you went to court, you felt, hey, you know, justice is going to prevail. That's how you felt. But unfortunately, the Sanhedrin was never a safe environment for Christ. It just wasn't. I mean, in the, in, in, in the trial of Jesus Christ, the Sanhedrin violated every single law governing proper procedure in a criminal trial. Every one. And it's probably one of the most unjust trials in human history. I mean, stop and think about it. This great Sanhedrin, these wise men, they condemned to death the only completely innocent person who ever lived. It wasn't like Jesus did some stuff wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. And they still condemned him to death. I mean, it was a mockery of justice. See, the whole purpose of the Sanhedrin was to save life, not destroy life. That's why God put it in place. But that was just thrown out the window when it came to Jesus Christ. No criminal trial was ever to be conducted at night, but Christ's trial was. Before condemning a criminal, the judges were to fast a day before the execution just to make sure that everything's right and everything's good to go. But those who condemned Christ, they didn't. They killed him the same day. Witnesses were required to testify against those who were accused. But you know what? They didn't find any who had truthful... They found some witnesses, but their their stories didn't line up. So they didn't find two or more. The accused had the right to defend himself, but that wasn't allowed in the case of Jesus Christ. Basically, there's two trials that are going on here in the life of Christ at the end of his life. There's two trials. There's a religious trial and a secular trial. There's the religious trial that's made up of the Jewish religious leaders. They had their own trial. And then you had a secular trial alongside of that, you might say, which was made up of the Romans because the Romans were ruled by the Jews. Or the the Jews were ruled by the Romans at the time. So they had to be under the subjection of the government that was in place. They were an occupied people. Only the Roman courts had the right to execute anybody. The Jews couldn't just do that on their own. The Jews could, the Jewish leaders could condemn Jesus to death but they couldn't carry it out. They needed the the Romans to come alongside them and help them carry it out. And so you kind of see the situation here. You have these two trials, and it was very important for the Jewish leaders of the time to make sure that they had all the T's crossed and the I's dotted and all the evidence in, so when they went to the Romans and said, this guy deserves death, that it was okay. The Romans would look at it and go, yep, you're right. And it wouldn't be a a no-brainer, no big deal. And each one of these trials had basically three phases to it. The Jewish trial and the Roman trial each had three phases, as we see in Scripture. So if you want to stop and think about it, he was involved in two major trials, but each trial had three mini-trials. So it was like almost six trials Jesus went through in a period of hours, which is just unheard of. 
The Jewish trial began when Jesus was taken to Annas, and then Annas sent him to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. And then the third phase took place before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin just after dawn when they tried to legitimize their evil intent. And after the religious leaders were done with Christ, they sent him over to the Roman governor, you know the story, Pontius Pilate. And after Pilate questioned him, he sent him to Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee. And Herod looked at it and said, I don't want to deal with this, and he sent him back to Pilate. So they're just running him around trying to figure out who's going who's to turn the switch for us. Pilate condemned him to death from pressure. So you had these three phases of the Jewish religious trial and three phases of the Roman secular trial. And both the Jews and the Romans violated various rules of justice. This wasn't fair by any means. And those series of trials led to the execution of Jesus Christ. But before you think, well, poor Jesus, he's a victim. A victim of of justice gone just crazy. Miscarriage of justice. Remember, God had placed this into, into motion. Christ was to die at the hands of evil men. It doesn't excuse the behavior of these people. But it doesn't negate either the fact that it was the plan of God. That all this happened just the way it was. And so these series of trials that they went through, usually when you go to trial, you're hoping that you can present evidence and you, know, you, can, you can sway the, the jury or the, the judge or whatever toward your, your side. Well, Jesus was given none of that, basically. The religious leaders predetermined in their heart of hearts that, you know what, we don't want this guy just put away. We want him dead. And so they started at the end. It's like looking you know, across the street at your neighbor and saying, you know, I don't like that guy. I think I'm going to get him in trouble. What can I get him in trouble for? Let's see. And you start creating things, and then all along you're trying to impugn him, and you're trying to to make that a reality in his life, whatever the character assassination would be. See, they, they started, the Jews started at the end with Jesus. They said, we know he deserves death. Now we just got to figure out how we're going to get there. We've got to come up with something that he could be guilty of, and it will result in his death. It was a predetermined sentence. They just needed a crime to fit the sentence, and that's what they started doing. And so you see this confrontation, and we have to go in a, in a couple different places here, but in Romans chapter 20, or Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, Matthew 26, 57, we see, then those who had seized Jesus, remember, they took him from the Garden of Gethsemane, they tied him up, And they led him away, and all the disciples fled. They led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Well, now, it's true that Christ was led to Caiaphas. That was true. But John fills in the blank here. John, if you turn over to John chapter 18, we see the first phase of this trial. Because Matthew jumps right to Caiaphas. Well, he went somewhere else before he went to Caiaphas. And in, Matthew, or in John chapter 18, look at verse 12. 
It says, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Remember, this is upwards of 1,000, 600 soldiers, probably 1,000 people showed up at this little garden to take this guy, to take Jesus into captivity. Verse 13, first they led him where? It says to Annas. And he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So they had a, a whole Roman 600 men come, take Jesus from the garden. They bound him, and they led him first to Annas. And, and I think one of the reasons they probably brought him there first was because he was probably right in it uh, with the, the, the Jewish leaders because he was probably a little ticked off because Jesus was cutting in on his prophet in the temple. Remember when he cleansed the temple? Well, this cut right into some of his prophets. And they led him away first there. And it's interesting that it says there in Matthew that they bound him. In Psalm chapter 118, verse 27, it says, Bind the sacrifice with cords, even onto the horns of the altar. See, every sacrifice in the Old Testament was a picture, was a type of the sacrifice that Christ was going to be for us. And even when you look at the life of Isaac, he was bound to be sacrificed in Genesis chapter 22. Christ was bound as a criminal. That's not by mistake. That's by the plan of God. He was about to be offered as a sacrifice for all mankind. And the reason that Christ was taken to Annas first was he was basically the brains behind the leader's scheme to kill Christ. And Satan was just behind that whole intentions. And so the soldiers took Jesus to his house, which you would never take a criminal to somebody's house. That's just not what you would do. It happened at night, which was also illegal, and it happened in a house instead of the judgment hall, part of the temple that was reserved for, for judgment. Now, this guy, Annas, he used to be the high priest for about five years span. But that was like 20 years before. So he was just the, you know, the son-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the official high priest that year. And so the high priest begins to ask him, look in, in, verse, in, in chapter 9, um, or chapter 18, John 18. And it tells us down in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. See, if you're arrested and you're taken in, there should be some kind of a charge. I mean, a police officer can't come up to you and say, hey, I'm going to arrest you. Well, what are you arresting me for? Ah, we'll figure that out when we get to the station. I mean, that, that's not good. There has to be something. Oh, your brake light's out. So they've got to come up with something. And believe me, police officers come up with all sorts of things that you never even heard of. If they really want to pull you over, if they really want to question you, they can do it legally. They can find something. But they have to have something. They didn't have anything here. But he begins to question him. He asked him a couple things. He asked him about his disciples, and he asked him about his doctrine. See, Annas wanted to know what Jesus taught. He wanted to know how widespread this movement was. He wanted to know who are the names of the people who are following you. Almost like a gang interrogation. And he violated every sense of justice with his questions. Usually when you went to court, you were told what crime you'd been accused of. 
But he's, kind of, he's trying to come up with a crime. He's trying to figure out where Jesus is coming from. And it was purely illegal. And look at verse 20, John 18. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. See, he's unmasking Annas. He's unmasking this whole affair. He says, I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. In other words, why are you asking me these questions? Go ask the people. I mean, it's not like I have some clandestine meeting every time I teach. I mean, I have multitudes of people there as I'm teaching. And so, what is Jesus doing? He's, he's basically saying, why are you asking me these questions? This isn't right. This isn't the way the courts do things. He should have not asked Christ these questions. Because according to the law, they also had a law that said you couldn't incriminate yourself. We're allowed to do that. So here he's calling, Jesus is calling for proper legal procedure. He's saying, hey, I'm not going to sit here and make stuff up about me. I've been out there preaching and teaching openly. Go ask those people. What are you asking me for? That isn't legal protocol. And you can see where he gets so frustrated. Because Annas is figuring, hey, we've got this guy, just need to come up with something. And Jesus isn't giving him nothing. As a matter of fact, he's kind of embarrassing him in front of all of his cohort there that was there. The only reason I say that is because it says in verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck him with his hand saying, is this how you answer the high priest? In other words, hey, don't talk to my boss that way. Rough him up a little bit. Jesus didn't say anything wrong. He wasn't being rude. He wasn't being obnoxious. He was just saying, hey, go talk to the multitudes that I've already taught in the open. They'll tell you. They'll tell you all about it. You can almost cut the tension in the air with a knife at this point because it's just, you know... It's frustrating. You've seen that in court cases. Sometimes you watch them on TV or whatever, and you know they go back and forth, and there's just this tension that builds, and pretty soon somebody blows it, and somebody says something that's thrown out of court or whatever. That's basically what happened here. They struck Jesus, and Jesus answered him in verse 23. He said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. In other words, let's deal with it right here and now, pal. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? This isn't right. He's throwing it right back in their face. In a very nice way. In an honest way. And poor Annas got so frustrated, it says he sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. He said, just get out of here. Can't, I can't get a charge. I, wanna, I, I want something that I can, you know, kill you with, and you're not giving me anything. Do you notice how in these different cases you're going to see as we encounter the different characters, Jesus Christ is just steady. He's calm. He's peaceful. He's direct. He's truthful. And yet, the people who are not, the people who are trying to mock up these charges and, and kind of get one over on the Lord, there's a sense of frustration. There's a sense of urgency. There's, there's just you know, this, this tension 
You know, and that's kind of the way it is. I mean, I, I've been along on ride-alongs with police officers, and they pull somebody over, and, you know, they'll go up to the, the car and, and begin to question him. And they'll go back, and they'll run the thing, and they'll go, oh, yeah, this guy's going to jail. I'm like, how do you know? He's hiding some. Just the way he's acting. He's sweating. His heart rate's up. His breathing rate's up. He won't look at me in the eyes. All this stuff tells that officer this guy is being deceptive. So now it's just a matter of figuring out where the stuff is or what it is. And and almost 100% of the time, they're right. Because they know how to pick up on that. And that's what you see here. You see Jesus just being calm. He wasn't doing anything. How many times have you been driving down the road at the speed limit and and just for whatever reason, you know, you, you see a police officer behind you. And the light's going on, the siren. Hey, if you're not speeding, if you're driving your own car, if you're obeying the laws, you don't go, oh, no, I'm going to get pulled over. I've definitely been on the freeway where I've been bumping up the speed a little bit, and all of a sudden I hear the siren, and bah, I freeze. I'm thinking, oh, man, this is it. It's going to be an expensive ticket. Sometimes I got a ticket. Sometimes I didn't. The guy went right by me. But, you know, it's important to know that when you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have to have nothing to be ner- nervous about. And that's what is key here when you look at this. But Anna just sent him bound to Caiaphas. He was done. He's like, get, get him out of here. Now, we go back to Matthew chapter 26, and that's where it picks up here in verse 57. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. This is an illegal gathering. This was not appropriate. Um, I mean, Caiaphas was just as bad as Annas. They were both kind of uh, sour apple. They were just not good, good guys. He, they were power-hungry individuals. They were greedy. They hated the truth. They hated Christ. And they were both pretty wealthy, and they had nice houses. And his house was located next to the temple. But look at who's gathered here. You have the scribes. You have the elders. And they've been gathering there, trying to scheme up something. And then when Jesus comes in, there's Caiaphas there. The scribes, the elders, Caiaphas, all these people were there, and they're basically all there to impugn Christ, to, to carry out a sentence of death. They just got to figure out how they're going to do it. Not going to go into a lot of detail, but there was one who was part of this gathering who was supposed to be there who wasn't. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 50, 51 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was not there. He was the only one who was part of that crowd who apparently thought what was going on was not right. And he just was never there. Um, And these other guys that were part of the group, you know, remember, Satan is behind this. He's manipulating their judgments. He's manipulating everything. This is his hour, the Bible says. So the people are gathered there. They're, they're, They're good to go. They gathered at the house of Caiaphas, in this courtyard. Um, in the courtyard, there were some soldiers gathered there around a fire, and, and it says there that Peter followed him afar off. Uh, you know, just practically, if you're going to follow Christ, don't follow him afar off, because you get in trouble every time. If you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, then boldly be a disciple of Christ. 
Don't fall into to Peter's thing here where I'm just going to kind of peek around the corner and see what's going on. Because he wasn't brave enough to step out for Christ. But he was concerned enough to kind of stand in the background and see what's going to happen. He wanted to see what happened. So the place they were gathered at was Caiaphas' house, which was not right either. They're supposed to be at the temple for any kind of court proceedings. And the purpose here was very simple. They had to come up with some kind of charges against Christ because they didn't have any. Um, the, the Sanhedrin, just so you know, is only supposed to act as a judge and jury, not as prosecutor. I mean, that's how when you go into court, you have different elements of the legal system that do different things. In our own system of government, we have different branches of government that are supposed to do different things. I say supposed to because sometimes they get a little, <laughs> a little eager and I think sometimes they cross the line. But that's the purpose. They just wanted to come up with some kind of charge against Christ that would result in his death. It wasn't a legitimate uh, gathering of the, the legal system as far as they're concerned. And when these chief priests and these elders and, and these folks would gather together, um, you know, they had every little uh, rule and regulation in place. They just threw it out the window when it came to Christ. I mean, it was just, you know, um, crazy justice, just gone awry. They didn't, there was never a crime, there was never anything, and yet they accused him of something that would result in his death eventually. One of the things that they did is they had to search for false witnesses. They had to come up with something, someone, who would say something against the character of Christ. But it says there that they found none. They found none. They couldn't find anybody who would uh, impugn him to the point where they could put him to death. And so they began to seek out liars. They began to figure out, well, okay, if we can't get a legitimate uh, witness, let's, let's kind of trump up some charges on him. But even the guys that came forward, the Scripture says that they wanted to trump up some charges. They couldn't even get their stories right. Oh, he's going to tear down the temple. That's not what Christ said. If you go back and you do the, the research, you can see exactly what Christ said. It's not what they said he said. And both of those individuals said he said two different things. So they weren't legitimate witnesses. So you had a search for false witnesses, and then you had a selection of the false witnesses there in verses um, 60, 61. It says, but they found none, verse 60, so many false witnesses came forward. There's probably some money in it for them. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. He didn't say anything. Mark chapter 14, verse 56, tells us that many bore false witness against him, but their witnesses agreed not together. So they were unable to agree, therefore making it illegitimate. What Jesus said was, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. I will raise it up in John 2.19. And he's referring, it says in, in 2.21 of John, to the temple of his body. So they were ripping the whole thing right out of context. So it's kind of an important thing to see here that they had this illegal 
uh, gathering. They had this illegal conspiracy. They also had a, an illegal condemnation right from the, from the very beginning here. We see in verse 62 the frustration on Caiaphas's point. He says, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He was frustrated. He couldn't get anything out of them. And he wanted to so much be able to say, yeah, this is, this is bad. This is real bad. But it's just a, a mockery as far as the justice system is concerned. And Jesus basically upheld the law through all this. And he, he, put, he turned it around and almost put the Sanhedrin on trial. I mean, he, he just frustrated the whole process. But we see there in verse 63 that peace that Christ had. But Jesus remained silent. You know, it's hard for most people to remain silent when someone's accusingly, accusing you falsely of something, isn't it? Have you ever been accused falsely of something? Or have you ever been told something that's not true about you? What do you before the person's even done talking, you're, you're, oh, wait, 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 that's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. You know, we're interrupting and we're, we're trying to get our say in, so we're defending ourselves. That, that just kicks in with most people. Christ held his peace. He held his peace. And he must have continued to badger him somehow. But you know what? That fulfills Scripture. Isaiah 53, 7 says, As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And they charge him, basically, with blasphemy in verse 63. It says, Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the, loving, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's setting them up. He's saying, all right. Let's see what he says. And look at what Jesus says. He gives him a prediction. He said, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a bold statement. That's a very, very bold statement. What's Jesus doing here? He is making a claim to be the Messiah, the Christ. That's what he's doing. He'd done it previously in Luke 4.21 after reading a certain text out of the book of Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth. Remember, he said, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They wanted to throw him over a cliff. So it's, it's important to understand this wasn't anything new. But he was just bold enough to say it right there, right in his face. He claimed to be the son of God. And he did that over and over. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Okay? And even in John 19, 7, it tells us the Jews answered Pilate, we have a law, and by our law, we, he ought to die because he made himself to be what? The Son of God. See, Caiaphas knew about Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, the Anointed One, the coming King of Israel. And as such, he was a threat to his rule and to his livelihood and to his priesthood. And so he thought, hey, this is, this is a way that we can work this out. Christ said, thou hast said. <laughs> In other words, yeah, you're right. This is true. 
What you said is true. And he says, in the future, basically, you're, I'm going to be ruling and reigning for all to see. That's his claim. Jesus was right. He is equal with God. And he would be elevated to God's right hand. Hebrews 1.3 calls Jesus Christ the express image of God's person. It also says that when he finished his work, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. When we looked at Matthew chapter 27, verse 30, we saw that one day the Son of Man will come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See, Jesus affirmed that when he dies, he's going to usher in to God's presence. He will be into God's presence. And he would remain at the right hand, the symbol of power of God as his king and ruler. So this whole conspiracy was simply out of sorts with their justice system. The whole condemnation, they condemned him for something that was just not legitimate. And you look at the conclusion here in verse 65. It says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. I mean, was Jesus' claim to be God blasphemy? Was it? Why? Because he was. I mean, it's hard to... to, to you know, he, I mean, he was claiming to be somebody he was. But he had none of that. He wanted to avoid the truth. In John chapter 10, Jesus says this, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not, but if I do... Though you believe not me, believe in the works. See, these religious leaders knew firsthand the miracles of Christ. They knew firsthand that Lazarus was up and walking around, and yet sometime in the past he was dead. They knew that Christ did that. They couldn't impugn his miraculous powers. But they did try to say, well, he does miracles, but he does them by the power of who? By Satan, right? Remember that? See, they, they didn't want to deal with the truth. They were avoiding the truth. And therefore they came to an unjust and illegal conclusion that he blasphemed. Verse 66, what is your judgment? He asked the council. And they answered, he deserves death. He deserves death. He's guilty and he deserves death. You know, this is clearly a violation of the, the whole proceeding. Things should not happen this way. No scribe was recording the votes. There was no pause between each vote, so each judge could have the, the seriousness of their decision recorded. This was just a mad mob who wanted the Lord Jesus Christ dead and they were screaming for his blood. There was no justice at all. Mark 6, 14, 64 says their vote was unanimous. (laughs) 
Here's a guy who never did anything but help people. He was perfect in every way. And yet, he was being led to the slaughter, as the Scripture says. And they're not done there. Unfortunately, they have to take out the revenge. Look at verse 67. You see their illegal conduct. You can't treat a prisoner this way. It says they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him around. See, they just thought, you know what? This guy doesn't deserve the justice that our system usually gives people. We're just going to kind of run them through on a rail. I mean, when you spit on somebody in this culture, it was, I mean, that's, that's worse than punching somebody in the nose. It really is. It's just a, it's a horrible thing to do. It's humiliating. And it says they also hit him. And that's just like, you know, just a shot. No, the idea is, is that they continue to hit him with their fists. Some translations say they buffeted him. They punched him as if he were a punching bag. Others slapped him with the palms of their hands. Also an insult. Mark 14.65 says, The guards did strike him with the palms of their hands. And even the, the temple police took part in this whole thing. They just, just started to beat him up. They had no court case here. They had nothing. Verse 68 says, Then they started to mock him. Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day framed their own Messiah. They framed the very Son of God, the very Messiah that they were waiting for. They pretended to know God, but when God came to them, they spat on Him. They beat him up. They convicted him illegally and sentenced him to death. And they were so far from the truth, and the only reason they were, they didn't want to admit the truth because they wanted to protect their little section of power. They wanted to protect their little element of prestige, their position. Very selfish individuals. You know, I'll tell you this morning, anyone who rejects Jesus Christ today stands with those religious phonies. There's no gray area here. You're either for Christ or you're not. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said very clearly, He that is not with me is what? Against me. There's no gray area. The judges and the religious leaders who tried Christ in this situation, they tried him as a criminal. And that they were nothing more than criminals themselves. The one wrongly accused will one day become the judge, beloved. One day Christ will become the judge. And the unfortunate sin of unbelief, pride, independence, and self-sufficiency will be dealt with. 
See, it's the sin of, of thinking you can be right with God without Christ. People do it all the time. Oh, I'm just going to be religious. I'm just going to go to church. I'll just do this. I'll do that. I'll follow Jesus from a distance, but I'm not going to become some religious nut. I mean, I'm not going to give up all control of my life to follow Christ. Are you kidding me? See, it's that kind of sin that thinking somehow you're going to, in the end, work things out with God without Christ, without that commitment that he demands. Jesus himself said, unless you're willing to follow me, take up your cross daily, die to yourself daily. Don't call yourself my disciple. He said it very boldly. He said it very clearly. Today, unfortunately, we have a world, and even within Christianity, where we have this, well, I'm going to come to Jesus so he can meet my little felt needs and make my family better and make my wallet thicker and help me deal with things at work that I don't like to deal with, and I'm just going to be happy, happy, happy in Jesus. I don't know. I read the scriptures. I find just the opposite. Jesus doesn't speak of that. He speaks of joy. But he also speaks of trials. He speaks of tribulations. He says, you know what? If the world treated me this way, think how they're going to treat you. We have to be careful sometimes. We don't buy in to the whole idea that Jesus just wants us healthy, wealthy, and wise. Because that's a lie from the pit of hell. And that's exactly where it will take you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this picture of just the illegal nature in which they dealt with your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, Jesus went through such humiliation. I mean, as an outsider, you look at him and say, what a loser. He didn't stand up for himself. And yet we know that he was majestic, he was glorious. And he stands boldly as the pure and perfect and spotless, sinless, holy Lamb of God that was given as a sacrifice for us. We pray for all who hear this message even here this morning. That they would raise up in their own hearts to affirm the perfection of Jesus Christ. All the earth and all hell, everything that they unleashed against him, and yet he's unstained. He's still perfect. He's the perfect, sinless Son of God, our Savior. When they were taunting him and spitting him, he didn't retaliate. He willingly endured the cross. He didn't deserve to die. We deserve to be on that cross. I pray this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way, if you've never received Him as your Savior, if you've never committed your life to Him, if you've never opened your heart to Him, I beg of you, don't stand with those who reject Christ. You may not feel like you're identifying with them. You're not... You're not Identifying with this crowd of illegal judges and judgments that they handed out. But if, if you're not standing with Christ, you are refusing him. If you've put him to trial in the court of your own heart and the verdict is that he isn't who he claimed to be, 
and you don't want him in your life, you stand with those in the court that day back in Jerusalem. doesn't have to be that way. You can open your heart to him today. He loves you, desires to save you, desires to carry the burden of your sin, take it away. As Christians, I pray that we would remember the message of grace and love to a lost and dying world as we leave these four walls that we would go out and share the good news of the gospel that Christ still saves and that we would be willing to surrender all to follow him no matter what the cost. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name for his glory. Amen.